0: You're listening to Rare Voices, the show that reveals the wisest path to a fulfilled life for patients with rare and orphan disorders, brought to you by the people of Opti-Me Care. I'm your host, Donovan Quill. Doug Lindsay started his first day of his senior year in college, collapsed on a dining room table with the room spinning around him. And this state or something like it would be his condition for the next 11 years. No doctors understood it. No treatment worked. No one had any answers. While Doug's condition at this point may seem extreme, we in the orphan and rare disease community know this story far too well. Entire families' lives are placed on hold while they search for that rare diagnosis. The emotional and mental stress on families grow each day with no answers. However, Doug's story, as you will hear on today's episode, takes a unique turn at this point. He took his diagnosis and treatment into his own hands, and I don't want to spoil the particulars of the story for you, but it is equal parts inspiring and frustrating. Doug's persistence has paid off for him and his family. The fact that someone with a rare condition would have to engage in a fight for his life is condemning, especially when that fight is with more than just a debilitating condition but the real fight was with healthcare in general. If you, like me, care anything about making healthcare better for people with rare conditions, then you, like me, will both be inspired and frustrated with what you're about to hear. My hope is that you feel a call to action. If stories like Doug's strikes a chord with you, I hope you decide today that you will do what you can to make healthcare truly patient first. So Doug, um tell me about your initiation into the world of rare disease. And I say initiation cuz you have a unique story which we're going to get into, but I think you were really initiated into it versus being found or introduced. So give us a little uh give us a little background on that.
1: Yeah. So my mom and my aunt were sick my whole life and nobody knew what was wrong with them. You know, they'd go to doctor after doctor and Largely come up with nothing. And it was it was apparent they were sick. Like it wasn't it wasn't you know, I mean there were there were occasional doctors or occasional people that, that doubted or, or were rude or, or, you know, dismissive. But I mean it was it, it was apparent they were sick. It was just not apparent how, you know, what the disease was or how to treat it or even what kind of doctor should be the quarterback, you know, for what they were dealing with. So, you had two women with muscle rigidity and chronic pain and very, very limited abilities. So, we're talking somebody in their 30s who can't open the front door of their house or tie their shoes or have a hug from their kids, you know, and is in unremitting pain and living a debilitated life where, you know, where their home is beyond their ability to navigate on some days.
0: Yeah. And then uh, as a, as, as a kid, I mean, growing up with that, it, it had to be very difficult on you from a, you know, just an all around, you know, being and being involved in it, you know, not being able to hug your mother was probably one of the worst things in the world, right? You wanted to snuggle with her. You wanted to hug her. Sometimes you needed it and and you just couldn't do it. Um, yeah. you know, and we we so we hear about a lot of the you know I want to say diagnosis day and we hear about you know finding out what's wrong with you and you know understanding things but you had a little bit of a different journey you know talk about when you guys really f- when you when you first found out that there was something wrong or that yeah. you had something that no one knew about
1: yeah i mean i had issues as a teenager Health issues, you know, but that would be labeled a subclinical condition. You know, like we were, we had some concerns. I had some stamina issues or joint pains and things. But when I was 21, I just finished my junior year in college and I had taken a biochemistry research position at KU, University of Kansas. And I looked at the 20 or so projects that they had and I picked the one that I thought would start to give me the background I needed to try and understand what was wrong with my mom. And I took that job. I showed up, and a few weeks in, I came down with mono. And so I spent the week in the lab knocking stuff over and asking everybody, is it hot in here or is it me? And even though I'm surrounded by hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of scientific equipment and a bunch of advanced degree holders, it wasn't until the weekend when I actually drove home that someone, my mom, suggested I take my temperature. And when I did, it was, you know, like I had a fever and it turned out i had mono we thought and i had to spend the summer at home i tried to go back to ku after a bunch of weeks of rest and it became apparent that the campus was much bigger than my house and that that was a problem i made it down the hallway to the lab and had to put my head on the table for hours to you know to even get back to the to have the stamina to try and get back to the car so i rested all summer I tried to go to school senior year, you know, at Rockhurst University, which is a small Jesuit school in Kansas City. I showed up, I made it to one day of classes, and I was just destroyed. And the physical act of trying to sit in a classroom or walk to the classes, just, you know, my life blew up. And when it blew up, I basically realized that I had what my mom had, you know, that this wasn't just going to be mono, that it wasn't, I wasn't two weeks of rest away from living the good life again. And, you know, that was scary because when I called home to tell them what had happened, tell my mom I was going to have to withdraw from classes and come home, you know, we both knew that, that this thing that had taken most of the adult life of my mom and my aunt in terms of their physical abilities, that it was now my problem too. Yeah, and and that I, I guess
0: you know, looking at that, you know, uh, talk about how that weighed on on your psyche. I mean, you, you watched your mom and your aunt go through this, and you know, obviously knew almost what to expect. Like, talk about that a little bit. Talk about you know how it made you feel. Some of the things you thought about. Some of the things you really, you know, just the, yeah. the wonder and the 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 mental state you went through.
1: Well, I mean, there was a hope that, that, that thyroid medication, which had been very helpful to my mom and to my aunt would be able to help me, uh, sufficiently, you know, that maybe that, that they struggled for years and that's why they were in such poor shape. And that if we knew good things to do early, maybe I'd get my life back, but you know, that was speculative and, and I started in by, by, by reading, you know, I mean, I had already decided that I wanted to see if I could figure out how to help my mom, uh, you know, understand what was going on with, with her health and, and see if I could do anything to help. So the idea that I was going to be active now in my own case ended up being a, a decision that had already been made. So that was actually helpful. You know, I'm there struggling at home, laying on the floor in the fetal position in pain, feeling like someone had run a cheese grater over, you know, parts of my body. And, you know, that's terrifying. And there was no escape. And there were things weren't going to get better on their own. And so those were, those were realities. And the first speech I ever gave, I said, you know, I didn't really have dreams you know, oh, this career or, the, you know, this is what I was going to do or, you know, like this, this the career path, dreams, things that what are you going to do when you grow up and people want to be astronauts or something. And so I didn't really have those dreams, but I'd always felt I was a man of destiny. And I don't know what that means, but it was a feeling. And it turned out that feeling was a lot more helpful than whatever dreams I would have had because they would have shattered against the reality of illness but now i was in a fight that was the same fight my mom was in and what that meant was if i gave my all and found something to help me maybe i could help her too
0: right so not only not only were you fighting for your, you know your your mom which was your original mission now you were fighting for yourself and you know i and and knowing you and and you know listening to some of your speeches and 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 reading some of the you know articles and things like that you know you you kind of looked at it and went Hey, I'm not getting the help and the answers that I need from, say, the medical profession. You know, you're not getting the, you know, the answers you're getting from any type of research that's out there. You actually took it upon yourself to, you know, go go kind of vigilante, you know, against the medical community or against the med- against the medical community you were up against, you know, trying to find those answers. But you you did something that's just so powerful to me. You saved yourself. You know, and, and a lot of people say that, like, hey, I saved myself from this or that. You literally saved yourself. Like, you, you, you learned what you could. You did what you could. Tell us about that. Walk us through that process and, and some yeah. of the things that surprised you during that process.
1: So, well, I mean, now I've got a fight on my hands, right? I'm sick. I'm seeing the doctors. They're not giving me answers. I'm reading. And it took about a year. And so, so I went to one of my mom's doctor appointments that she was too sick to go to. And I went to the doctor and I said, you know, I, I'm not here to have you solve this or tell me or treat me. I need to understand what books you read in your training. Like what, are, what books do I need? You know, you're an endocrinologist. What is, the, what is the book that is a benchmark book for getting up to speed on your field? You know, and there was a 2200 page book failing Baxter and Froman's endocrinology and metabolism. And so all I left with was a piece of paper that had a citation on it. And I bought a book that was the thickness of several phone books, you know, and, and, and I, and now I'm going to read this thing. And I did, I called the pharmacy and I said, you know, what are, what are we, you know, and they said, well, this is the book St. Louis College of Pharmacy and Wash U use. And I said, then I'll buy that one. And, You know, So I started reading these textbooks while I was back at school. Before I got sick, I was leaving one night, and there was a red book next to a milk crate and next to a trash can in the science building, and it was called The Physiological Basis of Medical Practice. And the price was right. It was free. Somebody was throwing it out. And I looked at it, and I threw it in my bag because I thought, you know, I don't know what happens, but I care about my mom, and and maybe this will be of help. And so I ended up assembling, you know, golly, several to many thousands of pages of textbooks, and then reading them to try and figure out what was going on. Eventually, I came up with a theory, and the working doctors, you know, the practicing physicians told me that that what I was describing didn't exist. And I realized, I sat home, and I thought, well, okay, I could take no for an answer, or there are other kinds of doctors, and those other kinds of doctors are PhDs, and they actually have to think about things that are new. And so I reached out to them and and like, again, you don't get, nobody was a perfect fit, but this was somebody doing anything and everything they could to try and figure out how to get up to speed and how to be big enough for the fight I was in. And I had enough people invest a little bit of time, expertise and attention in me to keep me in the game. I get a computer finally after maybe a year and a half or two sick. You know, that has internet access, and I'm able to find a nonprofit devoted to autonomic nervous system disorders, the kind of thing I theorized existed and was told didn't. So now I'm off and running. You know, I've got friends in med school sending me articles. They didn't look them up. I looked them up, and then I'm writing them and saying, hey, man, you know, and these were my classmates, and so they couldn't do squat for me, and they're on their way to being six figure doctors, leaving nice lives, and I'm stuck in a box trying not to die. And if all I needed was an article from the American Journal of Physiology, yeah, man, of course. So they'd get it for me if they could. And if I couldn't, I'd write the authors. And so I started reading, you know, and I found that what I thought might help me had shown benefits in a couple studies, and they'd been called paradoxical benefits, as in, like, we don't quite understand why this might be helping. (laughs) And I thought, well, maybe I do. And so... I mean, we're talking, this is, I'm summarizing years, but basically three years into my illness, I wrote up a short paper and was accepted to present it at the American Autonomic Society's meeting. So now I've gone from college student at 21 to 24-year-old college dropout in a wheelchair presenting a proposed treatment for my own illness at an international medical conference. And that, again hooray, and you can have a little ticker tape parade for empowerment and patient engagement, but I was still sick. Like I really just needed a doctor to work with. And that's why I went is because all the doctors in the world were going to be in one room and I wouldn't have to travel the world and wait six months each doctor to go, gee, mister, please, mister, and have them say, no, I could get all of them at once. And they had to listen to me because they gave me a microphone. There was nowhere to run in the room. And so that's sort of, you know, like that's, and 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 even then I got you know admiration and all and 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 you wrote that well young man and all sorts of stuff but it took me another 18 months to find a collaborator to work with. I met him at those conferences but it just man, you know, finding somebody to 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 run into the burning building and partner with a patient in 2004 now, so we've gone from 99 to 04. Like to find, you know, in 2004 finding a doctor willing to partner with a patient on testing and, and, and trying an innovative treatment, you know, that was uh, that was not easy. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that. Yeah. You know, you, you've met all these
0: physicians, they, they, you know, they congratulated with you with, you know, what you've done. You, you know, you now have a collaborator who's, who's willing to work with you and willing to do this, you know, and, and, you know, coming from a family with rare disease and working with a lot of folks with rare disease that hope is is there and, and you never lost hope, you know, so you, you had the hope and, and a lot of us have that, you know, we have hope that we can find a, a, a therapy or a cure or something for a loved one, find some type of, you know, genetic sequence, find answers out of what you have so you can do something about it. So now you're at the point of, you have a, you have a, you know, a co-collaborator, you have a, you know, somebody's going to work with you and somebody's going to do some of this stuff with you. Let's talk about the, the, the aha, where you kind of, you know, some people say, you know, now I know what I have. Now I know something I can do about it. Yeah. What's, this guy, what's this guy doing? You know, you've, you've gone through the gamut of the three to five different doctors, seven to ten years. You've extended that well beyond from your, your yeah. time with your mom. Now you're
1: like, okay, hope. So, so <laughs> we end up, so d- we get the testing at University of Alabama, Birmingham, and Dr. H. Cecil Coglin was my guy. He's since retired and he's passed away, but he was the warmest most amazing man and clinician. And he just, he was, his father was from the UK and he grew up in Chile because his father was sent by the the crown to help fight an outbreak in Chile. They needed infectious disease experts and he went. And Dr. Cogman, he just had this, hello, Douglas. It's wonderful to hear from you. (laughs) How are you? And he would laugh at everything. At one point he was in a car wreck And he was recovering and there's nothing to laugh about, but he would just, it would be okay, you know? And so it was really, he was this remarkable guy and he had hope too. And so the two of us are working together and we spent more than a year looking for a tiny adrenaline tumor because if this tumor, the size of a marble or smaller was in my body and we found it and took it out, I should get better. The problem was after all this looking, there was no tumor. And that's where I was just crushed. And I'm sitting at home, and I'm not somebody who gives up, and I didn't want to give up, but I didn't know what not giving up would even look like. And so I did what I'd been doing. It, it took a couple weeks of being down, and then I went back to the literature, and I asked a question. Is there anything that could cause the symptoms similar to an adrenaline tumor, that, what Dr. Coggan was expecting I had, but that wouldn't have been detected by the tests that we'd run? And I found this thing called adrenal medullary hyperplasia. And I found this other thing called primary hyperepinephronemia. And these are basically like a pachyderm and an elephant. You know, they're similar names for a similar thing. And so now the challenge was how do you look for this thing that's so rare that it's often found at autopsy or on accident during surgery? You know, and we took another year to figure out how to look for it you know, we finally go through this maze and gambit of, of experts weighing in and looking at scans and we go, okay, this is what he's got. Doug Lindsay has this condition and it's likely surgically treatable. And that's when I realize that there's no surgery to treat it. And this is, you know, you're standing on the edge of a cliff again and you go, okay, the, the goal I want's over there and there's nothing in between. And so it was a, you know, so again, at this point, I've developed the treatment that I'm on at home. I'm on an IV infusion of a new use for an old med from the ICU that people are usually on for hours, and I've been on for years. I've got a partner working with me. We found the needle in the haystack and and rescued it from people's skepticism such that we now had compelling data, and now there's just no surgery. But it's not that there's no surgery because, like, there's no way to go back in time or there's no way to, you know, like, it, there just wasn't something to achieve this. And science is the history of people solving mysteries. And so I'm people, and that's not medicine, right? Medicine, a doctor said, uh, one of my mentors said to me that the job of a practicing physician is to treat as many patients as possible with the means and methods available. And doing something outside of that often falls to the realm of research medicine. But I was tackling this like a scientist, so the fact that there was no surgery was a big damn letdown. But it was also the next step in this process. If you are a scientist, you are always butting into a question that isn't answered or something that hasn't been measured. And so, to me, even though it sounds insane, and even though I am in my living room, you know, Aristotle, you know, he was a scientist because of how he behaved. Not because of, you know, of where he worked. His peripatetic school was about walking around.
0: Right. You know, he,
1: and, and so so I'm sitting here and I'm saying the next step in my journey as a scientist who doesn't have a lab, but who is a lab, apparently, is to figure out how to do this surgery. And then the challenge was, how do you invent a surgery? And, well, I had to figure that out. <laughs> So uh, not
0: only, you know, have you have you now all, all intents and purposes self diagnosed, um, you know, with the help of mm-hmm. you know, your your mentor and, and physician friend. Now you're you, you've you've figured out a medication that works to sustain you. Yes. Now you're going to and, and the, the only other options were the only other options were to find something that was wrong with you that is usually found in autopsy and surgery. Yeah, yeah. So now, but there's no surgery that's that's ever been done. So
1: your option right now is to figure out how to perform surgery on yourself? So the challenge was, (laughs) is that the only surgery that existed would give me a new disease. And if you're a doctor and you take an oath to do no harm... Right. Giving a patient a new disease in the hopes that it's better than the one he has is not ideal. But again, it's a hopes that it's better than the one he has. We knew for certain I'd have a new disease. We couldn't prove for certain that this would treat, fix, and make me better from the old one. And so the harm was guaranteed and the benefit was speculative. Even though there was literature supporting if you pull the adrenal gland, this problem goes away. Right. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't a lot for these surgeons, but the harm was sure. And so given that, I started figuring out, I, ne- I realized that this was a bioethics problem as much as all these other pieces. And I'd gone to this tiny Jesuit school in Kansas City that doesn't have a med school, and they brought in speakers here and there. And one of the people they brought in was a guy named E.D. Pellegrino from Georgetown, and he'd gone on to be the chairman of the President's Council on Biomedical Ethics. But he was also a guy I called just here and there every once in a while to, to tap for, for some level of advice on something that I was trying to do, something new, something confusing. you know. And so once it came down to inventing a surgery, I knew that I needed to be able to frame this in such a way that the surgeons could say Yes. And that meant I had to understand the ethical landscape they were operating in, all of these doctors, so that I could only ask them questions they were allowed to say yes to. Because I needed to protect them if I wanted them to be able to take a risk and help me. And they needed to understand that I understood the position I was asking all of us to be in. And so that sort of so I started working with him and really trying to think this through of how do you do a new surgery? How do you frame it? How do you phrase it? And he connected me with other people. And when he couldn't connect me, my contact with him was enough in an email often to get somebody's attention. And so I ended up with a roster of really talented bioethicists from the FDA, from Georgetown, from U Chicago, you know, and, and, and we were, Kicking the ball around such that when there was progress, again, I'm pretending. So here's something special. When I got my health back, and we're jumping ahead a little bit, I got to have lunch with the guy who wrote the biography on Edison and who runs Edison's papers. So he's got museums and stuff. And what was so special is when Edison solved the filament problem for the light bulb, That was the last piece. That was the keystone piece. And so he went from from that at at Halloween to New Year's Eve. He had 50 light bulbs strung on either side and invited the press. He hadn't invented the light bulb. He'd invented electric light. And so he operated with the faith that this was solvable and that when it was solved, he would have to face the next list of predictable problems. And so here I am with no surgery thinking of the ethics of how to do a surgery that no one has even invented yet because I knew that that was a big part of it too. And so, you know, so I basically ended up working with the history of science department at Harvard and with Oregon Health Sciences University and a bunch of other places. And I found that the surgery I needed had been done in animals. And I started scaling it up from, from, from rats to cats to dogs. And that took a year probably, you know, to, to, from yeah. the time i found that this was doable in rats and everybody laughed and didn't care to the time i could explain how it had been done in dogs and people were dumbfounded i started building credibility because remember it's not just me and dr coglin i'm just like i was reaching out to my friends in med school i'm tapping an entire web of basic scientists veterinary surgeons you know human surgeons anesthesiologists all of these folks to, to, because I'm reading their published work and calling them about the focus of their research and asking a question as relates to my case. So it wasn't just me, you know, throwing out the bat signal and hoping that I'd get a million bats to come. Right. It was, it was tapping individuals and saying, this is the journey I'm on. And like my, my implicit promise to all of these people was, you do one, I'll do 10, but I need your one. And that became a true motivating factor for some of these people who I worked with for years and years. And that might be only a half dozen phone calls, but some comparative anatomy expert in Minnesota who could help me understand the difference between dog, cat and, and rat adrenal glands and human. Like that's not a knowledge that everybody has. Even the human surgeons, what the hell do they know about rat adrenals? <laughs> well, and, and and you know, I, I just look at this
0: and the, yeah. the the countless hours you've taken. You know, you starting in nineteen ninety nine, and I know we're well beyond two thousand four at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we're, and we're probably ten years later at this point, right? So the surgery you know? was
1: in twenty ten. So we're yeah. now. So the, the the journey from Doug has mono to Doug goes under the knife was eleven years. That and again if
0: finding your own diagnosis yes finding your own treatment yes defining a surgery and and actually going through completion of this the the with <laughs> and, and without social media and anything else that that we have today which yeah. you you made your own social media web connected I d- to the yeah I mean it was else.
1: and 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 that was and it but because the cow doesn't usually tell the butcher where to cut like right. I was in such a I was in such a tenuous position because these surgeons are all at the same conference together. You know, like if I offend somebody, I may have shut down. Like one guy, one guy was a wonderful guy. He was not a surgeon, and he thought I was on the wrong track. And his opinion, it may as well have been a, a blackout in half the country. Like when this guy at NYU decided what he decided... Doors closed everywhere because people went, he's the expert. If he's not paying attention, why am I going to pay attention? Right. And it wasn't until an expert at the NIH weighed in, looked at the data, and put forward a counter opinion that the lights went back on in Cleveland and Nashville and Chicago and all these places. And then everybody went and took their own look. And we're, you know, so this was, I mean, this was, I was reading the biographies of these doctors to know where they'd trained so that I could know which surgeons were influencing them and who trained them. I mean, I needed this web of knowledge because this is the world I had to operate in. And so one of the most important days of my surgery, which sounds crazy, was the day one, one surgeon moved from one major research university to another and became head of the department that he was running, the section that he was running. And, I followed up with him at some point and he said, Look, I've just moved to this place. And I said, You know, you're head of this. You know, you're head of the, you know. Right. And he said, You know, I'm new here. I haven't established myself as a good surgeon with my colleagues. And it's going to be about two years before I've done that, such that I feel I can take a risk. Now, I could have said, Man, you're, you know, you're sentencing me to death. You're a coward. Who knows what I could have said? But that was a very vulnerable thing for that guy to tell me because he's chair of fill-in-the-blank and, you know, the endowed professor right. of la da and he's explaining to me the realities of his circumstance. So what that meant was when I saw somebody move from Miami to Nashville, no matter how good a surgeon she was, I didn't even bother to contact her because right. he had told me that this was going to be the etiquette at this upper level of, 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 of practicing medicine. And so, you know, like that's, that saved me time. Like I wasn't chasing, you know, the wrong rabbits anymore. And so, you know, so th- this is the kind of help I needed in it. And so I piece all this stuff together and I finally find a surgeon to work with me and I'm going back to Alabama where Coglin was to get this surgery. And that's one of those days where, you know, you're on the plane and you're afraid to fly and you're like, God, oh, a pilot's done this a lot of times. And, you know, there's, and I'm sitting here packing you know, like as best I can, cause I can walk about 50 feet. I mean, I'm right. tremendously ill. You know, I can throw a snowball further than I can walk. And like a commercial break is about how long I can stand. And this has been for the last 10 years. I've been in a hospital bed 22 hours a day in my living room. And so laying down. And so, so this is my life and I'm trying to pack for this trip and I'm thinking, man, I hope I don't forget anything on the trip. And I'm also thinking, man, I hope I didn't forget to invent anything. I convinced everybody this was a good idea. (laughs) This is all on you now. Yeah. Yeah. Like, am I going to get there and have no toothbrush and go like, is that a a harbinger of things? You know, I sure hope I didn't forget anything on the main event. So yeah, I mean, you know, I've focused more on the, you know, the tackling of the problem, but yeah, I mean, I've spent this entire 11 years stuck in a hospital bed dealing with a racing heart rate. If I do something as simple as have a glass of milk, you know, unable to go beyond the front porch of my house. Sometimes I had friends have to pull up on the lawn and park their car at the bottom of the stairs because I couldn't walk down the sidewalk. I mean, you know, and have any energy left to go to the doctor. I'm traveling in a reclining wheelchair because I can't sit upright very long. So I'm like ensconced in this six foot long thing with my legs out in front of me. You try and get in an elevator and the, the wheelchair is literally too big for the elevator because it, you know, and they sit you up and, you know, one point we were, we were, when we were going to the medical conference, we were at one of the airports and we couldn't find the elevator to get from one floor to the next. So I'm standing while my buddies got the wheelchair and I on the escalator. Like I got out of the wheelchair, but like, cause I could right. do that. Thank God. But you know, we had a flight to catch and we couldn't find the elevator and we're like, well, let's do what we can, you know? So, I mean, it was the physical realities of disability complicated things so much. And I'm using dictation software to write because I can't, I don't have the stamina to use a keyboard. I'm reading these PDFs, you know, like I I switched to books on tape so that I could use all of the energy I had for reading for science crap instead of, you know, like literature or something. And I'm basically using time and trying to wait this out and saying, I'm going, if it takes me a year to do this, it takes me a year to do this. If it take, it took me four years from the time I knew I needed a surgery and there wasn't one to the time I got it. And so that was what it took. And the alternative route was no route, Right. And so I'm not a patient person. And I mean, if you've listened to me speak, like (laughs) I'm not a patient person by any means. But I am willing to put in the time and focus. If you've ever seen a, a border collie looking at cheap, I'm willing to put in the time and focus until I find my opening.
0: Yeah, and 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 one of the things I think you know you looked at, and that's, that's something to take take from it is, you know, some people take hope and they want it right now, and and yeah, you you, you know mm-hmm. because sometimes you need it right now. Sometimes you don't have the opportunity to to wait. Um, but you also want to make sure it's done right so the outcome is done right especially when you're when you're, your outcome is your life you know yes. so i think that's you know that's that's a huge thing you know to take to take with us from a you know a rare disease community and a, you know having some of these orphan you know diseases and rare diseases that you want to have the treatment right you want to have the the the, the process done the right way so others can then take advantage of it you know, yes. and especially, you know, when you have an in of one, you need to make sure that that's successful for others. And, you know, that's that's where I commend you, you know, wholeheartedly is you took the time. You you made sure it was done right. You made sure it was done the right way.
1: So I was playing for a lifetime of results. And it's yeah. really important to recognize those things, that your cousin's wedding at the bay that was going to be pretty. When you're involved in a fight that's this serious, and you realize that you're going to live with the consequences of the outcome for a lifetime, you really do need to put in the time. And you need to say no to suboptimal offers that 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 you say, Am I in 18 years, am I going to look back and say that was the worst decision I ever made? You know. And so I yeah, I mean, it was a the the patient the clinical patients or the the research patients is very different. And it it comes down to an understanding of hope. So a specific hope is like, I hope I get into Yale, you know. And a specific hope is a problem because it sets you up for disappointment if you get any other outcome. And And it focuses you. And it's a nice focus. But real hope is the belief that something positive can happen. And that makes you... Open to gratitude for good things that happen that are short of your goal, and for things that suit that, that that surpass your goal. That like you're all you wanted was X Y Z, and all of a sudden there's an opportunity that's bigger than you could have ever hoped. And that calling, and at first you're like, I don't want to pay. I don't want to heed this call. I don't want to pay attention to that. All I want is what I wanted. Right? Give me the Oreo and the cookie or the whatever you're whatever you'd set your heart on. And you've got to say, but if you are somebody who lives with this kind of definition of hope, which was something that couldn't be shattered in all the things I dealt with, was hope is the belief that something positive can happen. And I could live with that belief and persevere and that let me be divorced from outcome sometimes because it let me just keep agitating just keep asking just keep making things happen with responsibly you know like i'm not out there pushing people or yelling at doctors or something but just keeping alive the opportunity for good things to happen because there's other people like there's other people out there working on other diseases other meds, other surgeries, other mechanisms, other ways of organization. And if you're one of those people struggling in this thing, the first you realize is that rare disease individually can feel lonely, but rare diseases are more common than you'd think. And illness is a universal human experience that will be visited upon all of us, either ourselves or our loved ones. And so you're not actually alone And in suffering, you're not alone because that's sort of the nature of life too. And so you sort of have to realize that in your suffering, you may be, you may feel unique. And that's true because no one else is you, but you're not alone. And then in hope, you can find, you can get lucky. You can just hang in there. I mean, I have a friend who has been cured of a cancer that killed Paul Allen and he was cured without surgery or chemo or radiation. And Paul Allen had the ability to buy sports teams and he could have bought the moon and put it under the sun if he wanted. And my friend became ill at a more fortuitous time. And that was, but but being open to positive things was very important for him to get in the trial that changed his life. So, yeah, and, and
0: let's, you know, l- looking at, you know, giving others hope and looking at, you know, helping others believe that the positive outcomes can happen and, you know, taking your definition of hope and really looking at the the network that you built and the the, the things that you've learned. And one of the things that you're you're really doing now and you know when we when we talked last time, um, you know, we were just catching up. Mm-hmm you've taken a lot that taken the things that you've gained from your experience and now you're helping others with rare conditions and you're helping those families navigate kind of the healthcare that I always call it the ever changing healthcare environment we live in. Right. Cause it changes yeah. every day, whether it's a payer, whether it's a doctor, whether it's a thought, whether it's a, you know, a new, you know, treatment, it changes every day. So, you know, Talk. Let's let's talk about a little some of those things you're doing now. Like you know, all right, we've cured. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You cured yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I get the now, surgery and
1: it helps me, and yeah. I was able to get off the medic, the IV medication right. I was on, and then it took me almost two years to get the second surgery, but that right. one was a success, and we had to. And in the course of my work, I developed new uses for five existing prescription drugs, and they have helped my family as well. So my yeah. family are you know my mom eventually passed away. But she was given six months to live in 2008, and she passed away in 2016 because of the new uses for old meds that I came up with. And my aunt is healthier in her 70s now than she was in her 30s because of the same. And so, you know, so that's, that's the sort of the bow on, on some of my story. Right. Um, yeah, so this, this disorienting thing you mentioned of the ever-changing landscape of healthcare, like, there's also something positive in that. Because remember that silly definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different outcomes? It's not the same thing if the landscape is changing. The Google results change because the world is growing even as you're growing too. And so, so there's something really positive about that. What that means is, is that the thing you're reaching towards might be bending towards you. you know? and, and so there is something really positive in that and as disorienting as it is to get an email and say there's a word in a formulary and that somehow something that was the cornerstone of your life has now been put into jeopardy or that your doctor's retiring and his, you know, his successor, she knows nothing of you. and, And one hopes that we can get her up to speed, you know, like, like those are realities, but you've got this ever changing landscape of healthcare and I'm trying to affect it at, at, at different levels of organization. So I set up a small business as a personal medical consultant, and I'm basically acting like I did for me and for my family, where I take a very tiny number of cases and I obsess over them and I try and invent, not treatments, but try and invent ways to take what was invisible and make it visible so that we can figure out what to do next. And my whole journey was partnering with doctors and scientists. It wasn't supplanting them and, and stuff. It was it was finding out where they were weak by nature, you know, not by, by because they weren't smart or something else, right. but time. You know, I could pour a hundred hours even though they can and, and then they could learn that hundred hours of gleanings in fifteen minutes. You know. So so basically I started a small business in which a very small number of people can hire me and I sort of join their family and I'm a chief medical officer for their situation and try and get their medical house in order. And the challenge is, is that they still have to keep working and trying too. I know your family's background, I mean, you know, even when there was help and and plans for like your family's conditions, it still required the patient and the, the support system for the patient to be Grown-ass folk who really yeah. were <laughs> taking responsibility, you know. Absolutely. And so I'm reinforcements, and I'm coming, and I'm listening, and I'm working with these folks, and I'm bringing this mindset of a scientist and a journalist to try and tackle these rare cases or complex cases to, to sort of budge intractable cases. And I've, I haven't done very many. Well, I've, I've actually helped quite a lot of people in a, in a, in a less formal way but I've had a few of people that have hired me and we've had great success. And, you know, so that's what I'm doing at the individual level. And those cases that that, that hire me and that let me work, they also give me a bit of time to help people that, that, that I just run into. You know, there was a gal work. I got an email from her yesterday. There was a gal working the door at a corporate speech I gave because I'm a speaker as well. And... I talk about the role of innovation and hope in problem solving and such, but she was working the door at a speech I gave and she'd had health problems for 10 years with no diagnosis. And she would basically settled on this is my life. And my speech rattled stuff loose in her. And she talked to me after the speech and we had a few exchanges and she now has a diagnosis. And if the meds haven't worked by September, she's going in for surgery and she had a decade of misdiagnoses, but you know i gave a little bit of guidance but all, a lot of it was hope and her she went back to the well and and started looking and i've had those things happen quite a bunch you know quite a bit but i work with these families and i try and get them unstuck and we don't know if cure is possible but we know that progress is possible and we know that that resting easy and having confidence that that the test results are, are, are indicative or that even though the doctor was rude, that, that the doctor knows what he or she is talking about or, you know, or being like, I know they have a big name, but I'm not sure that's the way to go. So if they strike out, we have other options. You know, like I was able to tell when people go to Mayo Clinic. You can find. I mean, you. If you could listen to what's happening in their head, what they say is, "I've seen everybody. This is my last resort. These are the best. This is my last resort." That, mm-hmm. And 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 when we were there with a family, that's what we heard from other patient families. And I sat down and I talked to this girl who was fourteen in the airport, and I said, "Nothing these doctors can do can hurt you or make your life worse. If they have an answer, we can follow up on it. If." if they don't have an answer, this is not the end. And we have more cards to play and more people to talk to. And even if they don't agree with, with what you're describing or they doubt you or anything else, we have options. And so these people, they can only help you because we won't let them be a negative force in your life. And maybe that didn't mean much to her at that moment, but it sure meant once we got there and things got a little complicated... Those words made sense. Right. So, so, so that's what I'm doing at the individual level. And then at the larger level, I'm chair of this thing called the Rare Disease Advisory Panel. There's an organization called PCORI. The, the, you know, the, like, the clever people name and stuff, they were all out to lunch when people were writing this stuff. But PCORI is the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. You know, which, again, people used to just call it the Rockefeller Institute, and he would throw it out. No, but this this is our money. This is from every insurance policy sold. There's a dollar or two that goes into the kitty for this org, and they fund research that helps patients and doctors understand whether treatment A is better than treatment B for this disease or that disease, and basically they compare the outcomes so that instead of it being some esoteric study on a protein, it's like... Does this help heart patients? And so PCORI funds research. And part of their mandate is to fund rare disease research. And we're still trying to figure out how to do that well. Because their big comparative effectiveness studies would be like, you know, let's look at 100,000 people with heart disease and study this versus that and, and see what or diabetes. And with these rare disease people, it was beautiful that Congress didn't forget rare disease. Because it gives PCORI the job of figuring out how to fund research to help rare disease people and all I do is chair this board and ask dumb questions and 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 sit there like Columbo or you know matlock and sort of say <laughs> how does this help people and then they go "Oh well we didn't think of that or you know so so i'm I'm chair of that board and I work on a couple other where I'm sort of you know involved in public health or or clinical research, tra- or translational research. And I'm trying to make a difference at the societal level that is consistent with the care I'm trying to offer. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a doctor, but the, the caring and the support that I'm trying to offer my clients. And so when I got to work with E.D. Pellegrino, that ethicist from Georgetown who'd worked for the president, like I got to, I got to read his work later on and I could see how he could live out in his mission, his mission in life, and his understanding of medicine involved helping me and helping society in a way that was that that had the same integrity, that they had the same values. And so that sort of patient-centered approach and and the humility that it takes in the medical system to say I don't know, but keep looking. You know these things I'm bringing at at all levels of organization to try and help people. Embrace those ideas so that we can, you know, make progress on all fronts. Yeah.
0: And, and, and the work you're doing and, and, you know, with, with being, you know, a a family health advocate and PCORI and, and those things, I think someone like yourself who's, who's, who's kind of lived it, breathed it, been part of it and, and has seen the, the, the positives and negatives and the, and the neutrality of, of things in healthcare it's it's invaluable. So, you know, as, as you know, other listeners are out there, you know, I always say get involved, tell your story, let, let things, you know, let people know who you are. I can tell you from, you know, firsthand experience that my, my father and I actually, and a group of alphas, you know, al- we have alpha-1 and a trypsin deficiency in our family. Mm-hmm. Um, a group of alphas actually did a did a procur- a project for Procure. And it was a really interesting thing. It talked about, you know, the effects of smoking. It talked about the effects of pure health coaching. It talked about the, all those things that, that went into the treatment plan behind Alpha One, along with their, you know, um, along with their 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 medications that they that they use. But we talked about the, you know, the social um, economic effects of it too. So it is it it's a great organization, and and you know, you're right. It's it's great that the government thought about how can we get the patients more involved and, and really look at research from a patient centered um or approach to things. So. You know, anybody can get involved in those for their rare disease, it's, it's absolutely, uh, it's invaluable for, for
1: folks with rare disease. And what did you see, so in, in your family's case, so you're a carrier, but your yep. dad and uncle had the condition involving a protein that helps protect the lungs not being made properly in the liver. That
0: correct, yeah so ish. It, it's ish yeah, okay, so essentially um you know and, and you know told a story on, on you know other interviews and things, but sure. essentially um, my my uncle my my grandmother um, was the one who really kind of showed the family you know what what illness was, so much like you, my father watched his mom you know be sick most of her life, you know, having a lot of different lung infections, having pneumonia, um, not being able to breathe. Probably not at the different at, at the the case is severe as severe as your mom, um, because she could get out and about, but she couldn't you know go long distances just like you because she couldn't breathe. Um, she was you know confined to a hospital bed. She died at the age of forty six. I never met her. Um, my uh, but you know a few years you know fast forward a few years, my uncle started having you know lung and and liver problems. So alpha one can affect your lungs in form of emphysema or Mm -hmm. your liver in the forms of cirrhosis. Right. Yeah. So my uncle started having issues. And, um, at the same time, my, my dad's youngest brother, his nephew had liver issues. And, um, my uncle went to his primary care physician, you know, they didn't really know what to do. They kind of said, you know, he was like, come back in a couple of weeks. Let me think about what this is. I see you're, you know, you're deteriorating rapidly. You have the lungs of a, you know, 90 year old smoker and yeah. you're 40, right? Yeah. This was the, this was late, late seventies, early eighties. So nobody knew what alpha one was. There was some studies being done, but um, this primary care physician went away to a medical conference, you know, and some researcher talked about alpha one and it just happened to kind of fall in line at that point in time where, you know, he came back and he said, I want to run some tests on you. You mentioned your nephew has liver disease. You mentioned, mentioned your mom died of lungs. Yet other family members have emphysema. You know, while you're a smoker and you drink, it's, you know, you shouldn't be this bad. So he ran some tests and sure enough, you know, came back at alpha one. So, you know, throughout the years, the brothers and sisters in my dad's family all talked about it. Um, and then, unfortunately, they each became sicker and sicker. Um, and my dad, you know, eventually... Um, you know, he was one of the, you know, he, he started having symptoms, eventually needed a double lung transplant, um, received that in 2006, and then, um, you know, lived another 15 years post-transplant, saw my brother and I graduate, saw us, you know, both get married, birth of five grandkids, then unfortunately, um, right about the time we were actually founding, I, my, my partners and I founded Optomy Care to take care of patients with rare disease to kind of give back and and, and do more for rare and orphan conditions. Uh, my dad started having, you know, liver issues and eventually succumbed to his liver, uh, alpha one related liver disease in 2013. But, you know, it's, it showed me how to have compassion and, and, and navigate through that, how to work through and, and be a caregiver for this and, and then also what to avoid. Um, while I'm a carrier of it, we still have, you know, alpha-1, you still have elevated risks to develop signs and symptoms mm-hmm. if you have one deficient gene um, over, the, over a normal, you know, non-alpha-1 deficient patient. Um, but, you know, what's interesting is my wife, when we talked about having kids, I, I sent her to get tested and she came back as a uh, alpha-1, you know, carrier as well. So, there's 21 million people, they say, from epidemiology studies that carry an alpha-1 deficient gene and... You know, there's you know 150 hundred to 150 thousand you know people with the you know two copies, so homozygote um, yeah. alpha one deficient patients, one to three percent of your COPD patients. So it goes to all of the things that you probably look at in healthcare. Is there's there's guidelines, right? So every COPD patient should be tested. Everyone with unexplained liver disease should be tested. Yeah, anybody yeah. with asthma that's not reversing should be tested. And does everybody get tested? No. And unfortunately, until we have these protocols in place to find these markers in every patient and every protocol and every EMR that's out there, um, we're going to have rare disease patients have really problems being diagnosed. And yeah. you go to, you know three to five different doctors, seven to ten years, um, you know. And but I, I really you know I look at it as a blessing, much like you, that we've learned all these things and we can help people. And yeah. we can help, you know, we can help loved ones and we help, we meet new loved ones, you know, yeah. as, as you're out there doing, you know, you're, you're speaking to people and they come up to you, they become friends, they become family, you know, and, and, and it's just, you know, looking at that and how do we, how do we take care of them? So I'm going to ask you, Yeah, as you were going out there and you're meeting people and as you're, you know, you're, you're being a health advocate and as you're working, you know, with, with these different, on these different boards, What's one thing if you had a magic wand and you could wave your magic wand what is, what is one big thing that you think that, that you would love to see change in healthcare I know that's a really loaded question but
1: yeah well I'm I need a bit of research help uh, economic nerd research help not you know science research help but I want to I want to be able to explain how something like Medicare for all can be a conservative solution for healthcare reform. That it, that it, that it you know, like I think, I think we're just badly lacking in uh, problem-solving skills. So one mm-hmm. of the things we see is that if America stays addicted to billion-dollar solutions, we're going to just simply get out-innovated and all of our fancy companies will be you know, in the telegraph and telephone business instead of the future business. You know, like, we'll. this is a problem. And so we have billion-dollar solutions because we now have the ability to sell them to each other. And the developing world doesn't have the billions. And so there was a story I sent to a friend uh, about how in India, they can afford the throat cancer treatment, but they can't afford... The voice box uh, prosthetic afterwards. So now you've got right. people with no voice, and a guy built one out of wood with and had a curved knife and sells it as a as a as a sterile kit for a dollar. And it is huh. not as good, but it is better than having no voice. And if that guy was working with you know MIT's you know development people. Maybe we don't need a $60,000 something, something. And so what I would wish, besides the, the large healthcare thing I just described, is I think if we aren't collaborating with the developing world, we're fools. Because did you know, I mean, I'm talking like an F-15 fighter jet cost $38 million at one point. Now it costs $120 million. And whether it was $48 million and $110 million, it went up. Three, four-fold, and it's the same plane with new insides. And so, even really? though your iPhone gets cheaper and better and faster, like that military example is just one way in which America has decided to solve problems, and that shareholders love, and that it's a big inefficient way to 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 do things. And it will work right up until it fails. And when it fails, those companies will be screwed. So that's a, you know, I know you have a lot of industry that, that takes a listen yeah. to this. I'll tell you this, and I haven't, I don't. I, so when I walk around hospitals, you know what I see? I see writing desks. Thomas Jefferson had a writing desk, and I'm sure it was burled walnut and the most beautiful thing you've ever seen with a scroll top and this beautiful onyx something where he'd put a quill and write something as amazing as the Declaration of Independence. And guess what? This is what replaced an entire room in Thomas Jefferson's house. <laughs> and it's a big pen, and it's a penny if you're paying inflated prices. Right. So when I walk around hospitals, I see rooms full of writing desks. I see $150,000 ultrasound machines when the, the cell phone and a transducer can do 95% of that. And so I see uh, legacy systems on the verge of being... Not just replaced, but replaced with contempt for foolishness. Right. So we need a different kind of innovation. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know that that's a crowd pleaser. <laughs> I, I asked the question, right? Okay, that's I'm a fact. Get the
0: answer. That's what I want. You know. Um. So looking at looking at the uh, you know changing <laughs> gears and and looking at um some of the things that uh you you do is. For caregivers, you know, and you started out as a caregiver. Yes. Um, now, you and I both kind of did the opposite. Uh, we, we we cared for our, you know, parents. Yeah. But I'm sure you work with a lot of caregivers who are asking you to help them navigate for their children. And I know uh, Picuri has a lot of um, childhood or adolescent um, disorders that, that are associated with a lot of the research that goes on there. What are some of the, the messages that, you you give to a caregiver, and 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 I look at that. You know, caregivers like you and I, and then also, it's a, it's probably a lot of di- a little bit a different message for a caregiver who's you know who has a child who's affected with a rare disease.
1: Yeah, man, it's a battle. One of the first things I did is I started calling my mom, my, my buddy. It might sound weird, but I was like, "Hey, buddy, how are you doing?" Because I knew the the. Cr- crushing blow that she felt for giving me a de- genetic disease and i knew that even at 21 and unable to do much and leave the house that i was now in charge and that i would that if we were going to win i was going to be in the lead and i knew how hard that would be on my mom so the first thing i did is i just you know how are we doing buddy you know what you know what can i do for you because i wanted to change I didn't want the emotional hit and baggage that came with mom and son and me being forced to help care for her and stuff. And I think trying to be mindful of how we communicate as a caregiver to the patient, to the loved one, such that we don't create a circumstance where we're saints and their burdens. You know, I mean, Mother Teresa spent her life, you know, dealing with right. hospices and, you know, she, she had sharp elbows and she pushed hard and she tried to get things done. And I think that she would have rejected the premise that she was the saint and they were the burden. I think she felt blessed and you can be blessed and frustrated, right? The good news mm-hmm. is, is you can have lots of emotions and lots of time. But I think trying to be mindful of the, the the roles that we're casting each other in. It's not always your job to be self-sacrificing, but it's also not your job to be um, inadvertently making it about you. Sometimes it is about you and you have you know, people to talk to. There was this amazing diagram right? It was concentric circles headed outwards. And it basically said, support in, vent out. And so you're in a position to, so when somebody's wife dies, you know, you don't go to him and say like, man, I'm so broken up over Susan or something. You, you're there to support the spouse, you know, who, who had the loss, but to somebody else who didn't know the person you're, but cares about you, you're in a position to vent. So that diagram of these concentric circles related to the person in crisis and how support heads inward and venting heads outward is very helpful to think about. But we all fail, you know. We're just we just have to try and try to be kind and realize that that you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, you make you make in you you know you make mistakes because you're human, and when you're son or your daughter feels worse because of a mistake you made, you feel terrible, you know, but that's okay. Like we're there and we're trying and we're not asked to live perfect lives. We're just asked to try. Yep. So I guess that's what I'd say.
0: No, and I I, I think that's that's, that's the hardest thing to give advice to someone who's going through something, even though you've gone through it, even though I've gone through it. Until you, and when you're going through it, you don't want to hear anybody else. And, and yeah. you know, even though you're searching for that advice and you're searching for those <laughs> things, until you're ready to hear or until you're ready to listen, it's very difficult to give somebody else advice. But I think your advice was spot on in terms of just get through it. And, you know, every day, every second is different every and and, and really be there when you need to be there and be present. And
1: try and use your words gently. And if you're able to use your words gently in one part of your life, you can spread that to others because you'll need to be gentle with yourself as much as you are with, with the loved one, if you're a caregiver. And that is really essential because, you know, I said, I always said like, never ruin a good deed with bad words. Like never ruin a kind deed with unkind words. Like, because right. you can do something wonderful for somebody and then ruin it and with by saying something, you know, smug or something. And it just, you know, trying to keep those things in order and, and just trying to be gentle and kind with your speech to yourself and to your family is, uh, I mean, it pays off immeasurably. Because who you are in a crisis is who you were headed into the crisis. You don't You're have right. time to grow. <laughs> so You're when something right bad around. happens, like I... I did, never knew. I didn't know when my mom would die, but I always knew that maybe it would be the last time I talked to her. So when she died, I have zero doubt of the last thing I said to her because it was always the last thing I said to her. Yeah, you know, which is "I love you." You know.
0: Yeah. So, like, yeah, my mom makes me say that to her every time I uh, I talk <laughs> to my mom. Pretty much every day, and it, it, the phone conversation is not over until she goes and then what? And I go, "I love you, mom." <laughs> and, and you know, it's it's. Yeah.
1: It's funny, but she needs to hear that before I hang
0: up. You know?
1: And, and it, you know, someday that, you know, who knows to whom, but, but, but having be. said it more times, you know, it's like when I, I clap for people. So I've, I spent six years coaching other people's TEDx talks. I give right. these speeches and I end up at conferences and there's people getting awards for things I've never heard of. And, and I'm there clapping. You know, other people are eating their dinner. And it's like, why am I clapping? Because it's valuable and free. And this person has a moment and they will remember not everybody Absolutely. but they'll remember whether the tenor of the room was happy with them and i'm sure yeah. happy with them cuz there's enough hard moments if i've been yeah. invited to celebrate with them you know clapping's free and valuable so i do it yeah and and, and you can ch- and that's you know one they're doing the hardest thing that that is
0: I, I think in life and most people w- would agree, you know, most people's biggest fear is public speaking. Most <laughs> people's fear, biggest fear is being up on that stage, no matter, no matter if you're comfortable or not, yeah. there's that there's that moment of fear when you take that step onto the stage. And the, the, the only response is the standing ovation at the end or the, or the, or the, uh, the electric, electri- electricity of the audience. So you are right. Clapping is free. And if you have somebody up there, you know, clap for them no matter what they're
1: doing. And one other so, thing I just wanted to add. So, you know, because we didn't know whether this surgery was going to help me. We didn't know. When I read ancient Greek stuff, like the Iliad and other things. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's philosophers, right. but even their stories. They had a lot of heroes. And some of their heroes died, too. Right. Not, you weren't a hero because you won. You were a hero because you endeavored boldly and left it all out there and 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 that was really helpful because that's what i could control right like right and so that was special is that you know like we have a lot of these there's a superhero or something you know or but i mean the greeks they would spend pages about who had special skills and who could do this but couldn't do that and and that was okay with them and so this idea right. that there're more than one hero there's more than one you know person to admire and that You don't have to, I mean, Hector was their opponent and he died in the Trojan War and they consider him one of the greatest champions. And that's like, that's, that was helpful to me because I didn't know whether I'd win, but I knew that I would put out best efforts for me and for my mom. So, you know, and, and having said that our theme for this, uh, this season,
0: you know, for season two of our podcast is onward. Yeah. What What we mean by that is how can we look forward together? So with everything you've talked about, everything we've, you know, we've covered, what would you say is how you can look
1: onward? We, as a rare disease community and as a medical community, I think that we, well, we're in a special time. Cause first off we can crowdsource solutions. We can reach each other. There are patient organizations. You can email someone in Japan and they can email you back you know, in, in, in instantaneously. I mean, so we're in a special time, but there's also something else. There's stuff now that probably wasn't there 15 years ago. Nord did exist, you know, the rare disease organization. And now PCORI exists, P-C-O-R-I. But there's also, I don't know much about them, but I sure ran across them. This is the genetic and rare disease information center for the NIH. Like good for them. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, they're part of the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Like, how can we work with them? Uh, There's another thing that, that people, you know, we've all heard of the National Cancer Institute. How many of us have heard of the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities? Because that's one of the institutes, too. It's 10 years old, just like PCORI. Like, there's some good stuff, and there are some people that we can work with and there are organizations that need more wind in their sails and need us to, to help make them what they could be. We don't know, like, you know, I started something called the Lindsay Center. It's just me. You know, there's no center. There's no building. There's no, you know, there's just, you know, there's just a, there's a, an, a, an automatic message reply saying, I have the CNN article came out and I'm drowning. You know, like there's no marble lobby. Well, these things exist, and they're a lot more substantial than that, but these are organizations that we can pour effort and life into, and that goes with all the rare disease orgs out there too. We can help build these things up into the infrastructure that we need to get help for people who didn't know that they were going to face a rare disease fight and now are hoping, just hoping that there's something out there to tell them something so that they have hope that they're less afraid, and that they can aim towards a better life.
0: Couldn't have said it better than that, Doug. Um, so we've learned a lot about you, but I know there's so
1: much more to learn about you. Yeah. So how do, how, do, how do our listeners go about doing that? So first off, if you're out there and you're in industry and you might want to have me come give a speech, you know, uh, APB is my speakers bureau and, you know, uh, Doug Lindsay, and I'm, I'm not too hard to find. And so I do come and give speeches. I've also built workshops and and other things. You know, I'm, I'm considering having a display. My mom drew a bunch of cartoons of the patient experience back in the 80s. And I'm thinking of trying to get together an art exhibit. And it might really be informative for some of these Pfizer's and, and such. But so if, if you want to reach me as a speaker, you know, my speaking bureau is a good place to do that, APB, and, you know... The rare disease situation I can help it if you're someone of real means and you look around and say, "I can't believe that I can buy a Lamborghini, but I can't get any answers, you know like uh, helping me you know if if i if you hire me and I work together, I also get to to work you know for free for people to just spend time helping other people because you know i trying to do good by all the gifts I've been given from folks is part of it. But, you know, so people can hire me as a personal medical consultant. I can only take a couple clients a year because we don't know if people can be helped. But, you know, I, I can be reached on email and social media, and, you know, if somebody has a question. I can't do much, but sometimes I can say something smart, you know, and, and sometimes I can refer you to things you've never heard of, like the the things I just read off, you know. Because like it's beautiful to find that there are people just wishing that you were part of their organization and and uh, and ready to help so all right well, thank you Doug and uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you yes, thank you for having me I love your podcast it it's bringing out smart people sharing great you know great stories and you know the kind of the kind of strategic care that rare disease patients can get that is a life changer. I think, uh, I think anything we can do to develop and, and, and flesh out that model has impact a lot bigger than even the people we help individually. Well, thank you.
0: You've been listening to rare voices brought to you by the people of OptiMe Care. If you want to hear more rare voices, go to Rare dash voices.com there you can learn about our shows read articles from industry thought leaders and fill out a forum to be a guest on rare voices again that's rare hyphenvoices.com. voices.com i'm donovan quill co-founder of Optime care thanks for listening and don't forget to listen for more rare voices all around you each and every day